you're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. Morning. I usually, I was a little late. I usually like to come up kind of when you guys are still clapping, just because I like to pretend that you're clapping for me. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Colleen. That was awesome. Andrew, appreciate that song. My parents are here today, and uh, today is their 57th wedding anniversary. And because I just did that, they probably will leave today. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, I would ask you to turn in them to the Gospel of John. We started a series on the Gospel of John last week, and uh, we're going to look... Uh, I, I didn't actually expressly mention it last week, but we're, we're not going to go kind of like verse by verse um, per se. I mean, we're still going to tackle the text, obviously, but um, we're, we're not going to go through every part of every chapter and as a result you know we we looked at the first 17 verses of chapter one yes last week this week we're going to look at chapter two and uh, I hope that is all okay with you (coughs) Um, as you're turning to John chapter two and we're going to look at the first 11 12 verses that that kind of thing this morning so um I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first 11 verses and then we're going to just kind of try to unpack that story a little bit. We'll try to look at it in context. We'll try to take a gander at, at what it is that we're, this is going to be a little bit of a different kind of sermon. Just everybody buckle up a little bit and it's going to be a little different. I'm not going to give you three points this, this time. I'm going to just, we're going to just look at the text. We're going to unpack the story a little bit. And then we're going to give, I'm going to try to just give a couple of takeaways that, that maybe we'll be able to just leave here with this morning. So uh, if you have your Bibles, chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, and uh, let's read the first 11 verses together. Here's what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Some of your translations probably say my day has not yet come, but in the ESV it says hour. (coughs) His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And then they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now... uh, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone who serves the good wine first 
And when people have drunk freely, then the poor, uh, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this was the first of his signs. Jesus did at, uh, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let's, uh, let's pause there and let's pray together before we continue on. Heavenly Father, it is our desire to deepen our relationship with you. It's our desire to, um, to, to learn from your scripture this morning. And, and Father, we know that your, your word is true. Um, and we know that your spirit desires to equip us to go out into the world and to serve you. And so, Father, I pray that that would indeed happen this morning, that we would learn, that we would hear from your spirit. And, and Father, I pray, too, that, that you would just teach us, that uh, your word would wash over us with clarity and truth. And, Lord, um, I pray that as we walk out these doors that we would just be fired up to serve you another week in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes. Um, God, we're just so thankful for your grace, for your love, for your mercy. And uh, we just desire to, uh, to be those servants that are ready, willing, and able to go out into the fields and, uh, and harvest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in the intro to the Gospel of John last week, uh, if you'll remember back that far, John records the fewest number of miracles of all the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John records the fewest number of miracles that Jesus performed, only eight. And not only that, Interestingly enough, the six of the eight that he does mention in the Gospel of John are, are only recorded for us in the Gospel of John. So he records eight miracles. Six of them are only mentioned in the Gospel of John. They're not found anywhere else in the Gospel. And this story that we just read in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, this story um, is one of those that is only found in the Gospel of John. The miracle of the water changing to wine. John also tells us, interestingly enough, that this was the first miracle that Jesus performed uh, during his public ministry. And so to begin this story, let's just kind of look at some of the highlights of the story, um, and then we'll try to just kind of just kind of unpack it together but we first need to get give us give ourselves a little bit of context so um the location of this miracle is at cana i mean it's called the the heading in your bible probably says the wedding at cana so we know that this was in a little town called cana well where is cana well if you look on a map you'll notice that cana was located in the region of galilee um and obviously in the nation of Israel. So let's put that into context, in, into 2022 context. So um, Cana would be McGregor. Uh, Galilee would be North Norfolk. 
and uh, Israel would be Canada, I guess. I, I guess we skipped Manitoba there, but that's all right. But the, the Hebrew word for Cana um, is Kana, basically almost the same thing, but what it means is the place of reeds. Um, most historians would believe that Cana was this place where uh, there was water nearby where it was kind of marshy, uh, where there were lots of reeds, uh, tall, slender grass blades that typically grow in marshy areas. Probably uh, Cana was in one of those areas. Um, It's also the location where one of Jesus' disciples was born. Anyone want to guess who it was? No, not John. It was actually Nathaniel. Um, just a little bit of trivia for you there. Nathaniel was from Cana. John tells us that in John chapter uh, 21, verse 2. Cana is situated, um, if you know where Nazareth is, like sort of Jerusalem is south. You know, if you go north into Galilee, um, Nazareth is there. Go about another five miles north of that, and then you're going to find Cana. Um, Cana today is an Arab town, uh, and it's called Kafrakana, and it's about it has about twenty three thousand people in it. That's the scene for the miracle um, um, at the wedding banquet. There's a wedding, and this and then after the wedding, the banquet ensues. John tells us that this story. Um, John tells us in this story that Jesus had been invited along with his disciples. Uh, Jesus' mother Mary was also there. She was one of the invited guests. Joseph's fa- or Jesus' father Joseph is not mentioned. And most historians would believe that Joseph has already passed away. Um, that, that he, because he's, he's not mentioned um, anywhere. And in fact, the last place where Joseph is mentioned is when Jesus is... Um, 12 and in one of the gospels and, and I didn't research that but so you don't see any reference to Joseph after that time Jesus's mother is mentioned in the story we know her to be Mary uh, she's not mentioned by name and that's interesting as well but she's referenced here simply as the mother of Jesus And I will tell you that the wedding at Cana and the miracle that Jesus turning water into wine is um, a favorite of the Roman Catholic Church. They love this story. Um, And I don't think, I don't know, is it because they love their wine? I'm not sure. I'm just going to leave that one alone. But I think one of the other reasons why the Roman Catholics love this story is because of the interplay between Jesus and Mary. The Roman Catholics would argue that this story actually shows Mary's dual role with Jesus in divine things. That's what they would believe. I, I mean, I don't agree, agree with that, and, uh, but I'm just telling you that's their perspective. It's interesting um, this is an interesting first miracle, don't you think? I mean, because it's different than all the other miracles that Jesus performs when you read through the Gospels. This one, really, um, this one really doesn't benefit anyone other than the bride and groom and, and, and the guests at the wedding, I guess. Um, 
Nobody is miraculously healed. Um, nobody is miraculously fed by a couple of loaves and, and fish. This miracle that Jesus performs seems to be something that he does purely for the enjoyment of the wedding guests, which is odd. I mean, there's one other byproduct of there, there's there's one other byproduct of this uh, this story, and it comes right in that last verse. It says, "This the first of his signs Jesus did at Galilee, Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory." And his disciples believed in him. So another byproduct of this this miracle was it contributed to the opening of the eyes of the disciples, to the enlightenment of the disciples is what my version says. So the basis of this miracle, the wedding at Cana, turning the water into wine, is um, it was for the enjoyment of the wedding guests because there was no wine and then there was wine. Um, and the enlightenment of his disciples. That's what it appears would be the extent of, of the reasons for this, um, this miracle. But remember what we talked about last week. And we have to always keep this in mind. We have to keep this in frame when we look at everything else. In John chapter 20 and verse 31, sort of like John's theme verse, and we need to keep it in our minds as well, Remember what John says. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So everything that John writes is meant to give us some information. Everything that John writes is meant to point us to the fact that Jesus is the incarnation, right? fully God and fully man Jesus is God we talked about that last week the identity and the deity of Jesus who he was and and we have to always keep that at the forefront of of our minds we have to keep that at the forefront of our hearts we have to keep that at the forefront of everything we do in relationship in in relation to our relationship with Jesus Christ because if he isn't fully God and if he wasn't fully man, then our faith doesn't work. If he wasn't who he said he was, we are lost. Because like Andrew's song said, we can't pay that debt. It's too much. Too much interest. So this miracle on the surface looks pretty, I don't know, external. <laughs> but it, it was written in there for a reason. John wrote that into his gospel so that it would help us to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And you know, when you stop and think about it, that should be encouraging for us to think about. Because sometimes God performs miracles purely for our pleasure and to help open the eyes of the hearts and help open the eyes of our hearts as to who he is. 
I mean, I suspect, <laughs> I suspect that there are miracles, countless miracles that God does every day um, in our daily lives and to the people that, that we care about for those very reasons. Have you ever thought about that, that God does things for you just to bless you? It's true. Just because he loves us and he wants to provide and to take care of us. I think that's, I think that's one of the reasons why, I think one of the reasons why we, we miss some of the things that God does for us um, is because we're always looking for the big ones. We're looking for the, big, the biggies, the big miracles, you know, the, the healing of cancer miracles or the save a friend who's an atheist miracles or, or whatever, you know, those, those big ones, those ones that just, you know, Nathaniel and Benny miracles. We're looking for those kinds of miracles. But yet God does some things that we could probably explain away to just being lucky, finding that good parking space. Please hear me. I, I, I am not saying the biggies are bad. <laughs> They're great. They're good. But sometimes I think that we miss the other things that God is doing in our daily lives because we're on the lookout for the grandiose. And as a result, the still small things go unnoticed. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, just like you enjoy blessing your kids, I, I hope you enjoy blessing your kids, um, if you're a parent, you, you know, sometimes you just want to do something for your kids. You, you just want to bless them. Well, I, I would say, on a, on a much larger scale, that's the same thing about God. God just loves us so much that he wants to bless us. He's going to honk here any minute. Oh, maybe I missed it. Um, and and let me just say this too, because I don't want us to be to uh, to misunderstand. God doesn't bless us based on our performance. Do you know what I mean? I mean, if we have perfect attendance attendance in church in twenty twenty two or. We uh, go to the soup kitchen, UGM, go to youth group, volunteer. Now, those are all good. Those are great things. But God isn't going to bless us more if we do lots of those things. He doesn't bless, bless us on our performance. He blesses us based on his goodness. Remember that quote I shared once? God doesn't love you... Um, how does that work? Sorry, just got to get it framed in my mind. It's going to come. Just wait. I'm just going to keep going back to my notes here. It's not a performance-oriented thing. If I just do things to make God happy, then if I think that if, if I just do more things that God is going to bless me with a miracle or two, God delights to show himself... And he does powerful things on, on behalf of people, not because of their performance or because of our performance, but it is on the basis, always, it is always on the basis of his goodness. We don't do things, we don't do good things so that God is going to love us more. We do things because he couldn't love us anymore. 
Do you see the difference? God is a good God and he delights. He delights to show his goodness. Back to the story. I got off on a rabbit trail again. I apologize. Going back to the passage, this is a, uh, it's different, yes, but it's, one, it's a wonderful miracle in that same respect. Nobody at that wedding really had any particular need. I mean, the disciples, they were going to get there. They, they were going to get to the point where they believed Jesus was who he said he was, right? I mean, they were all starting to, to suspect they wouldn't have left their jobs, their livelihoods. They wouldn't have left that if, if that hadn't been the case. They, they didn't see something different in Jesus. But the, the regular guests at the wedding, no, they didn't have any particular need. They had run out of wine. Big deal. There was water. <laughs> um, but Jesus was doing this purely for the enjoyment of the marriage guests and the enlightenment of his disciples. So take a look at the story again. In verses 1 and 2, it says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also in, invited to the wedding with his disciples. Uh, and then it says, When the wine had run out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So Jesus, his disciples, and Mary, they're all there. They're part of the, the wedding guests. Um, and, th and, and that's really all we know, um, apart from the fact that, that they had run out of wine. Some historians believe that this was actually John's wedding. Um, but we don't know whose wedding it was because it doesn't say in the scripture. So let's, let's just go back to the text. T to run out of wine at a... Uh, at a, at a wedding banquet in the first century was a huge faux pas. I mean, this was a big, big, major, major social embarrassment. This was an embarrassment that I am not exaggerating. Historians said this was a, a shame to run out of wet, uh, wine at your wedding. Uh, this was a shame that would follow the the wedding couple, the bridegroom and bride, the, the, the rest of their lives. When everybody followed them or talked about them, the first thing that they would say was, well, they ran out of wine. I, I mean, that was essentially the, the case. Everyone would have been talking about it, and this may actually have been why Mary actually went to talk to Jesus about it. I don't know if they were family. I don't know if they knew the couple. I, I, and I don't know if Mary was just being a busybody or, or whatever she was being. But she noticed that they had run out of wine and she went to Jesus to talk about it, uh, to, to talk to him about it. Maybe she was motivated by the fact that these people were going to be shamed. And that wasn't a good thing. And so, verse 3 when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So this is interesting. Mary intimates here like only a mother can do. She doesn't come right out and tell Jesus, you need to do something. All she does is she just says to him, they have no wine. Uh, she just intimates. And if you are a son of a mom you know exactly how that goes down at your house you know your mom won't necessarily come right out and tell you what she wants you to do she will just intimate 
She will say things like, the trash is overflowing. What is she intimating? Take out the trash, right? Right, Mom? The dog's at the door again. Your room is a disaster. She's not saying what to do, but she is saying what to do, right? She's saying, take care of this. She's just intimating. She's, mothers know somehow exactly how to say something without actually saying something. They are experts at it. So kudos to you, moms. You know exactly what I'm talking about if you have a mom. And I know that all of you do. So Mary, evidently um, an intimating expert, goes up to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. Uh, and that's all she says. Now, okay, let's, let's just sort of just stop here and let's think about some of the aspects that are that are at play here okay and we have to infer some things we and and maybe some of these things aren't true but i think that we have to kind of expect that some of them are we don't honestly know if mary expected jesus to do a miracle here because remember this was his first miracle so, uh, does she know that Jesus does miracles? I mean, obviously she knows that there's something pretty amazingly different about her son, but at the same time, did she walk over to Jesus with this in mind? I bet you Jesus, if he really put his mind to it, he could turn that water into wine. He, I, I'm not sure she did think that. I'm not even sure the word miracle came to her mind. She'd never seen him perform one, so it's not like he had been doling out these miracles and she goes to him and says, hey, Jesus, time for another miracle. And it, it was nothing like that, I don't think. So we don't know if she's actually asking Jesus to do something here, but perhaps he was just being a mom. Maybe she was just saying, Jesus, you got 12 buddies here. Why don't you go to the next town, get some wine, bring it back? Or, or something like that. We're not sure. She just presents the problem. And maybe hoping that Jesus will do something about it? Look at, look at what Jesus responds in verse 4. Now, before I read verse 4, let me just say this. We read this, and it sounds a bit rude. Okay? Um, well, let, let me just read the verse first. Uh, th this is what the verse says. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, um, I have to be honest, as my mom is here, uh, if I had ever spoken to my mom that way, um, it would have not gone well with me. Um, but I just got to say this, okay? We have to come at some of the things, because, I mean, we've talked about this before. Some of the things that we read about Jesus or we read in the scriptures make us feel uncomfortable, right? Because they seem like, to us, who live in 2022, they seem like cultural faux pas. They, they seem like cultural... Um, we would never say something like that, okay? Well, we have to come at it from, from a, I think, two different 
perspectives. We have to think about this. We have to think about the fact that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago in, in a much different time. In the first century, um, we don't understand all the rights and all the customs and all those sorts of things. So we have to keep that in mind, right? Keep things in context. You also have to keep in mind, because our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ depends on it, we have to keep in mind that Jesus never sinned. And so, we, with that as our foundation, when you read something like Jesus saying woman, calling his mom woman, um, it, it gives us a little bit of a different perspective, doesn't it? I, I hope it does. Uh, here's something else that I want you to, to, uh, to understand or, or maybe just to consider. <coughs> I don't think that when Jesus says woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I don't think that it is as disrespectful as you think it is. In fact, I don't think it's disrespectful at all. Um, it does sound a little weird in our ears. Why would he call his mom woman? Here's why I think that, and here's why most of the commentators that I read would, would agree with me. Jesus called his mom woman instead of saying mom or, or mother because he was respectfully letting her know that the, parent, uh, the, the parental bonds between him and his mom were no longer binding. That he was his own man. That there was a separation now. And in the case of Jesus, the intimation here is that the only one calling the shots for Jesus in life, in his public ministry, was God the Father. And so commentators would agree that this was actually, this was actually not a disrespectful term, but a respectful term. Instead of calling his, uh, his mom mother, he was saying woman as a way of letting her know that the parental bonds were no longer binding. And the inference also was, listen, Mom, I only take my orders from my Father in heaven. That's why he said what he did. And then the rest of verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Some of your translations maybe say my time has not yet come, my day has not yet come. <laughs> Jesus was always operating, even though... Even though we don't know it, Jesus is always operating on a divine timeline. He's always cognizant of what to do and when to do it based on, based on the divine will of the Father. Okay? And so in effect, between these two sentences here in verse 4, woman... What does this have to do with me? Question mark. My hour has not yet come. Somewhere in between those two sentences, Jesus is saying to Mary that their relationship is different now and that to reveal his power would have to be the will of the Father, not the wish of Mary, his mother, or anyone else for that matter. And in between those, those two sentences, it seems like God the Father gave Jesus the go-ahead to, to move forward in this. 
So it must have been in this quick exchange here that Jesus, I don't know, did he quickly send up a prayer or, or did he divine the will of the Father? Is this the will of the Father? Because as we just read, he ends up doing the miracle. He ends up doing what his mom asked him to do to help out. And that fact is significant because John, all the way through his gospel, makes it clear that Jesus only does things according to the will of the Father. Let me give you some examples. <coughs> John 5 and verse 19 says this, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. John chapter 5 and verse 30. Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 8, 29. Jesus says, for I always do those things that, that please him, that please my Father. The point is here that Jesus would only operate based on something if it was the will of his Father, of God the Father. So here in John chapter 2, Mary comes to him with a suggestion. They have no wine. Um, Jesus, you need to do something about this. But at some point, it appears that Jesus actually discerns that this is indeed the will of the Father, that he should do something here. And Mary seems to actually have an understanding that Jesus is going to do something because the very next thing out of her mouth is verse 5. What does it say? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. There's this brief moment there and then she turns to the, the servants and says, do whatever he says. And then Mary walks away. Do you know that those are the last words recorded in the Bible of what Mary says? I'm not saying she didn't speak after this, but this is, that's the last thing that Mary says that is recorded in the Bible. Take a look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. <coughs> so, is it t so John tells us that, that there's these six stone water pots, and each water pot holds the capacity of 20 to 30 gallons of water. And Jesus told the servants to fill these water pots and then verse 7 says that they filled them to the brim. Now, if you do the math, we're talking 180 gallons of wine-ish. That's a lot of wine. So a couple questions have to arise to, to our brains here. We have to ask ourselves, how many people were at the wedding? I hope that there were more than 180 because that constitutes a, a gallon of wine per person. I mean, maybe there were a lot of people. I'm just joshing here, but that's a lot of wine. I'm just saying that. Um, but I want you to notice that this miracle, more importantly than how much wine there was, this, more, this, this, this miracle is more about quality than quantity. I mean, that's really the point that we have to get to, right? Verse 8, <coughs> and he said to... Um, 
said to him, draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, uh, it now became wine. And, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom. We'll just say, stop there. So every wedding in ancient times had a master of the feast. It's sort of like, I guess, a modern-day wedding planner, I guess. Um, and uh, this master of the feast, this wedding planner, his goal or his job was to make sure that the guests were fed, that they had their beverages, and that everything else was taken care of. And so Jesus instructs the servants that were helping him to... Um, to take a cup to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast wasn't aware that Jesus had performed this miracle. Um, and then verses 9 and 10 tell us that he is so impressed with the quality of the wine in verse 10 and said to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So the wedding coordinator, I think maybe is uh, exposing an ancient wedding trait that, that you always serve your best stuff first and then when people uh, lose their ability to taste anything, then they serve the poor stuff after. Um, they put the cheap stuff out. But the bridegroom, or the master of the feast, the bridegroom, essentially are saying um, that you have done the opposite. I, I, think, I think in the NIV it says, you've saved the best for last. The master of feast essentially is saying, it's odd that you have saved the best for last. You brought out the good wine at the very end. And then in verse 11, right at the end, it says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Verse 11, it says that this is the, the first of Jesus' signs. In, in the Greek, uh, it's, uh, the, the, the Greek word for signs is something like simeon. Um, and it, and it's, it can also be translated as miracles. This was the first of his signs, the first of his miracles. And, and the disciples believed in him and they saw this miracle and they understood that there was something supernatural. There was something divine about who Jesus was. And that's essentially <coughs> the story of the wedding at Cana. But before we close our time together, I just want to point out a, a couple of things, okay? And I think that these are important takeaways. And I don't, I don't want you to take what I say with a grain of salt, but I, I'm just saying that this isn't expressly in the text, so we have to just sort of read into it a bit, but I, but I think that the analogy and the application is there. Think about this. I want you to think about the vessels that Jesus chose to use to perform this miracle, okay? They had run out of wine, and so whatever vessels that had been used to serve the wine, whether they were jugs or wineskins or, or, or whatever, they were there, but they were just empty, right? There were, they had run out of wine, so there was no more wine in, in the wineskins or, or whatever. So my question is, why didn't Jesus say to the servants, 
go get me those wineskins, go get me those jugs or those jars with the wine came in and then bring them to me and then we'll fill them up with, you know, or, or whatever. I don't know if he described to them what he was going to do. Uh, why didn't Jesus just use those empty vessels that, that had held the wine already? I actually don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus chose those stone pots instead of just refilling um, the empty vessels. Take a look at verse 6 again. This is interesting. Now, there were six stone water jars there. And what were they there for? They were there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. <coughs> so these stone water jars, Bible historians would say, were there. They contained water that was used for purification. The Jews put this incredibly high premium on ceremonial ritual baths because they understood that God was a holy God and they wanted to consecrate themselves um, externally before approaching and worshiping a God. So before they would go worship at the temple, often they would bathe to make themselves clean on the outside, which was meant to represent clean on the inside as well. So these stone water pots, these six water pots were used for that purpose. They contained water for purification. And Jesus selected those particular pots. That can't be coincidental. The water in those water pots was used for Jewish purification ceremonies. What is wine symbolic of in the Bible? It's the blood of Jesus, right? I mean, when we approach the table, when we have communion together, the wine, the bread represents his body and, and, the, and the, the, the grape juice or the wine or whatever we use, it represents the blood of Jesus. So isn't it interesting, I think, that Jesus is communicating a message here? <clears throat> One commentator said this, external cleansing only does so much. The real cleansing that every single one of us needs is in the heart. And the cleansing of the heart can only come through the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus who offered his life on a cross. Dare I say, dare I believe that this is intentional, what Jesus did here, that he selected the pots and the water within those pots typically used for external cleansing and he replaced it with wine a symbol of his blood that he shed on the cross for the internal cleansing of the soul these things were done so that you might believe Jesus was the Christ the second thing I want you to see besides all the nuances of the Jewish wedding and the interesting exchange between Jesus and his mom, um, the fact that this was the, fr uh, the, fact that, that this was the first miracle that Jesus performed, I think the thing that I love the most about this story is right at the end when the master of the feast goes to the bridegroom and he commends the bridegroom for saving the best for last. And the reason why I think that's one of my favorite parts of the story is because it's really a picture 
I think it paints a beautiful picture of, of just how God operates. Think about it. How God always chooses to save the best for last. You see, someone who doesn't know Jesus in a personal way, this life that we're living today, this is as good as it gets. This, um, this life is as good as it gets for, for people who don't know Jesus. And, and for those of us who do know Jesus, this life is as bad as it gets. The best is yet to come because God, <coughs> God has saved the best for last. Um, a few years ago, that preacher on TV, Joel Osteen, came out with one of, uh, he, he wrote one of his books, and, and the book that he wrote was entitled, and I'm not joking, it's entitled, Your Best Life Now. And I just have to say that that is completely false. Because we are living not for, to live our best life now. I mean, we don't need to be, we don't need to be, Miserable, that's not what I'm saying, but this is not our best life now. It's not. This is our worst life now. Because as a believer, I think it would be more accurate to write a book and have the title, Your Worst Life Now, and then subtitle it, Because God Has Saved the Best for Last. I'm writing that book. You can't have that. I'm just saying that. Because that's really the, the, the believer's perspective, Right? This life is full of difficulties and this life is full of heartache and betrayal and remorse and regret. The things that we've done and the things that have been done to us and there is divorce and there is death and there is disease, there is physical pain and there is emotional pain and there is suffering and there are beautiful things as well. There are wonderful sunrises and there are times with your family and, and there's all these different times when you, when you see love expressed verbally or in action and yet this is our this is this is just a a precursor of what we have yet to experience jesus comes along to save us from our sin <coughs> and to rescue us from a sinful world because the best is saved for last and so that we can ultimately experience the prize of knowing him and, and spending forever and ever with him. You know, you know what's interesting? The first miracle that Jesus performs is at a wedding. And the very last thing that happens in Revelation chapter 19 is also a wedding. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. We talked about it last year when we went through Revelation. It's in Revelation chapter 19, and it speaks about the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Jesus is both Lamb and Groom. And it's, uh, I'm just going to read these verses for you. You don't have to turn there. Revelation chapter uh, 19, verse 6. <clears throat> and then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The first miracle that Jesus performs is at a wedding. And the last reference to a wedding banquet in the Bible is the one that Jesus has prepared for you and for me. He's the one who sheds his blood and dies on a cross for us that we might be able to enter into a relationship with him. He's both the groom and the lamb in the story. He has pursued us with his love. He's gone after us to redeem us that we might enter into an eternal relationship with him. We are the bride of Christ. And those who know him, we are his bride. We, we have made ourselves ready so that on that glorious day when either we die and go to be with him because we know him or he comes again and he receives us to himself, Either way, those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior be prepared to enter into the wedding banquet, a wedding banquet like no other. Jesus will be seated at the center of that banquet as our Lord and as our Lamb and as the groom who died to rescue his bride from a sinful world. Amen? Amen. And for those of us who know him now, you're going to join him at the banqueting table forever and ever in relationship with Jesus. I mean, we talked about it in Jeremiah. We'll talk about it again in John. This place is not our home. We're only passing through. This life is not our best. So don't be discouraged and don't give up because God has saved the best for last. Let's pray. God, you are a good God. And I, I praise you because you have done so much for us and you have prepared so much for us and you long so much for us to be with you. So thank you for that, Father. And we just give you the glory and honor this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.